be assembled with you this morning. We are going to uh, take another week off from John. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago um, as we finished up chapter 7. A little phrase in here that... Um, It's a little parenthetical phrase in verse 39. After Jesus says in verse 38 of John chapter 7, He that believeth on Me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake He of the Spirit, which they that believe on Him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. And I said several weeks ago that we were going to come back to that and um, try to have a, a biblical understanding of what the meaningful difference was between the work of the Holy Spirit post-resurrection and pre-resurrection. And, uh, and so I'm not ready to do that yet, so I'm not going to try to squeeze something out that I'm not prepared for as far as theologically. So we're going to go to Ephesians 5, and I'm going to remind you of some things that um, if you've been here for a while, you... You know, but we need reminders um, out of Ephesians chapter 6. I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 6. I think I said five a minute ago. Last week we looked at prayer and we said that prayer was warfare. I want to look some more and back up a little bit in the text and uh, look some more at spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. This is something that's going to be applicable to us in any uh, season of life, the reality is, is that we are, um, if if we're believers this morning, if we've been brought out of uh, darkness and into light, if we're part of the kingdom of God, then we are uh, in the middle of a uh, spiritual battle. And so sometimes there can be popular ideas about spiritual warfare that just simply aren't biblical. Um, to some degree or another. And so I just want to, I want to look at verses 10 through 18 and spend the morning thinking about spiritual warfare. So Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints." So I want to think for a little bit this morning about this whole idea, biblical concept of spiritual warfare. What are we talking about when we're talking about spiritual warfare? 
Well, there's four general statements here that I think are helpful. Number one, spiritual warfare is a metaphor for standing on the Lord's side in the epic and big struggle against the powers of darkness. When we're talking about spiritual warfare, we're really talking about the same things we were talking about in Psalm 112 this morning. That is, standing with the Lord or living a life that is characterized by someone who fears God. Spiritual warfare, statement number two, is a moral struggle. That is, it's a struggle of the heart. We're not going to turn here and and read all of this, but James chapter 3, if you're taking notes, verse 13 through James 4.12 lays this out very well. It's the difference in adopting the wisdom that's from above and the wisdom that's devilish. Okay, This is helpful as we try to frame biblically. What are we talking about here when we're talking about spiritual warfare? Spiritual warfare could also just be it's just a synonym for the struggles in the Christian life. The struggles in the Christian life. And then fourth, spiritual warfare is really a battle for lordship. The question is, in every battle in the spiritual realm, that you will ever fight. The question is ultimately, who will you worship? Who will shepherd you? Who will you trust? One of the um, realities that we have to keep in mind as we think about this whole idea, this whole reality of spiritual warfare, go to Luke 11. Luke 11. Because sometimes we can either overemphasize or underemphasize these kinds of realities. And I'm not talking about we as in just cultures in general. I'm talking about Christians. There are some Christians who live their life as if Satan doesn't exist, as if the powers of darkness do not exist, as if there is no constant and ongoing warfare in the spiritual realm. It's just every day is normal. You know, every day is a good day. And if it's a bad day, it's because you chose for it to be a bad day. And the kind of struggles that you face are just the things that tend to happen. But don't give too much thought to spiritual realities. On the other side, we can overemphasize these concepts. I'm not talking about biblical principles, but the whole concept of spiritual warfare. And we'll talk about this more in a minute, but the overemphasis looks like a a demon behind every corner who's ready to pounce on you and make you do this, that, or the other. A lot of times people who have life-dominating sins have this idea that there is... 
some sort of a um, uh, uh, spiritual overtaking where they are um, overtaken in an involuntary way by the powers of darkness. And it's either Satan or a demon or something else that's made them do this, that, or the other. Both of those are wrong. When I say both of those are wrong, I just mean you'll find neither one of those kinds of attitudes or teachings in Scripture. So we are in a battle. But what Luke 11 helps us with and what Luke 11 tells us, this is something that's necessary as we're going to understand this. We'll we'll just read verses 21 and 22 and then I'll make the comment. This is Jesus' teaching. He says, when a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. This is a section that is... uh, replicated in the other synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark. And essentially, it's saying that, sure, Satan is strong. And Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air, had his time. And while we have a powerful enemy, our Savior has overpowered him. So Satan is the strong man. Christ is the stronger who in Mark says that he comes into the house, he binds the strong man, and he plunders his goods. Well, what's the point in that? Well, the point is this. If you have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, which means that you've been uh, recruited out of the armies of darkness and placed into the armies of light, then the resources that you have are far more powerful than the resources that the kingdom of darkness might wield against you. Well, isn't that good news? And honestly, that's contrary to a lot of what flies under the radar as a biblical understanding of spiritual warfare. Something that some people do not keep in mind is that if you just look throughout Scripture, one of the essential components of the Christian life is hope. Right? I want you to think about how hopeless it would be If what you were recruited into is this spiritual battle where you just barely have any resources and the enemy that you're going up against can pounce you, overtake you, and render you helpless anytime he wants. Now we'll talk in a minute about how that's communicated, but it's never communicated like that, but how that's communicated at times. But But here's the reality. Jesus has said, He announced the onset of His ministry that the kingdom of God was at hand. That is, the kingdom of God is here. What does that mean? What is the kingdom of God? It's the rule and the reign of God. He told us 
told his disciples, tells us in Matthew 16, 18, that the gates of hell are not going to prevail. Hey, they're not going to prevail against his church. They're not going to prevail against his kingdom. They're not going to prevail against his people. And so, whatever the trial, whatever the sin, whatever the struggle, when we think about spiritual warfare, number one, we need to acknowledge the fact that it exists, that you're in the middle of it, this is certainly not original with me, but you can think about how ludicrous it would be to be in the middle of a war without acknowledging that you were there. Okay? When you're in a war, you're there to do one thing, and that is to fight. It's been said that one of the uh, most effective things that Satan has done is to convince people that he doesn't really exist. Or if he does, he's not doing much. But Peter says, he's going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. In other words, he's active. And if you're a Christian, you've got a target on your back because he is actively seeking to devour you. So let's see if we can't get an understanding biblically some categories that we should understand when it comes to spiritual warfare. So number one, in a war, there's an enemy. There's an enemy. So what enemy do you face on a regular basis? Well, you face what has been called we face what has been called the unholy trinity. The unholy trinity. That is the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is the uh, fallen world system. Okay, the uh, We would call it the kingdom of darkness. It's, uh, it's, we're not talking about specific empires. We're not talking about specific nations. We're talking about a spiritual kingdom that permeates nations, countries, kingdoms. The flesh is that fallen nature that you were born into this world with. It's the sin nature that you inherited from Adam. It's something that's inside of you. And then obviously the devil. The devil is... Spiritual foe. He's God's enemy. He's our enemy. And so John chapter 8 helps us understand who Satan is and how Satan works, if you'll turn there. I'm not sure what you think about when you think about going to war or being in battle with Satan or with Satan's forces. There are some who take some of these realities and based on metaphorical language construct really what amounts to being 
kind of a scary movie. Scary in the sense of these disfigured demons who are out to get you and gobble you up and fill in the blank. Well, Scripture doesn't really paint that sort of a picture. In John chapter 8, this is what Jesus says. as he's speaking to folks who uh, do not believe and do not understand what he's saying. John chapter 8, verse 43 and 44, he says, Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word, ye are of your father the devil. The lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So who is Satan? Well, he's, according to Christ here, he's the father of lies. What is it and how is it that Satan works? In other words, what are we looking out for? If you're going to fight, what are you fighting against? Well, it's not just in John 8. You go back to Genesis and you can see this played out again and again and again, particularly highlighted in the first sin in the fall. How does he work? He conceals truth with lies that are attractive to the flesh. He conceals truth. He conceals reality with lies that are attractive to the flesh. Has God really said? You remember that. Or think about how he's described in Revelation 12. Revelation 12. In verse 9, Revelation 12, verse 9, says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. You see how he's described here. He's described as the one who's deceiving the whole world. Again, a liar, the father of lies, the one who conceals truth with lies that are attractive to the flesh. It's also helpful, I'm not going to turn to all these places, and if you want these, you can ask me for the notes afterwards, but it's also helpful to see the the different names that Scripture uses when speaking of Satan. Though the first one we just mentioned is Satan. It just means the slanderer, the accuser. 1 Peter 5.8 talks about the adversary, the opponent. So right off the bat, you have an accuser who is your adversary. You have the father of lies who is after you. Mark chapter 4 verse 3 calls him the tempter. 
Revelation 9.11 calls him the destroyer. Matthew 6.13 calls him the evil one. 2 Corinthians 4.4 calls him the god of this age. Ephesians 2.2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. John 8.44 calls him a murderer and a liar. And then John 12.31 and John 16.11 call him the ruler of this world. Just based on those titles alone, we can at least come up with a few things. Number one, whatever else Satan is and whatever else he has the capacity to do, left to ourselves, we are absolutely no match. The prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, The God of this age is what he's called in 2 Corinthians 4 4. But left to ourselves, we are absolutely no match. Secondly, we see as he's the tempter, he's the accuser, he's the deceiver, he's the destroyer. We really find that the battle that we face is not a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. And it's a spiritual battle that really hinges on truth. And when I say truth, I'm not talking about five points of doctrinal truth. I'm talking about truth as a whole. Truth as opposed to lies. The question that we said earlier is what are you going to believe? Who are you going to believe? Well, here's the reality about Satan. He lets no crisis go to waste. He will try to use our pain and disappointment to pry us away from our confidence that God is gracious and really cares about us. It's no wonder that so many people have a crisis of faith whenever they find themselves in difficult situations. It's also no wonder whenever you find people who have been as a pattern of life seeking to walk close to the Lord that when these crises come, their faith can actually be strengthened, not diminished. Why? Because they've been fighting this battle long before Satan has this what we would call nuclear bomb in the middle of the spiritual warfare long before Satan has the chance to convince them that because of this crisis, they should turn from the promises and the truth of Scripture. So, we have an enemy. You have an enemy. I have an enemy. He's crafty. He's wise. One reality that I think is worth pointing out is that he has been doing his thing a whole lot longer than you have. Okay, you, You have, you know, we are infants in comparison to the experience that he has in this war. You take a 
an enemy who has been added for thousands of years and put him up against a guy like myself who's been at it for 41 years, man, I'm dead in a heartbeat. If it's just me. But the fact is, it's not just me. This is that which overcomes the world, even your faith. Christ said that we could take part in the fact that He has overcome the world and we could put in there the flesh and the devil. And so now the question is, we see we have a formidable foe. Satan is our enemy. Our flesh is our weakness. The world that we live in is the environment where the war, where this war is going to take place. So now the question is, what about this battle that we live? Where does the spiritual warfare, where does it take place? Well, <clears throat> the way Ephesians and, and the rest of Scripture would portray spiritual warfare is that it's taken place in the midst of everyday life and in the context of everyday choices. There aren't special seasons in your life where you're in the middle of spiritual warfare. You're in the middle of spiritual warfare every second of every day. Now, I said earlier, there's two contrasting views on how all this works, or two metaphors on how this works that are popular. And uh, I think the, the illustrations are, are helpful. So one would be the understanding of spiritual warfare from the book series. Maybe you're familiar with it, maybe you're not. I know most of you are. The book series, This Present Darkness, the, the Frank Peretti book series, where he portrays spiritual warfare as being um, a bunch of... Uh, uh, busy demons who are overtaking and um, causing people to sin. So if the town drunk shows up every time he drinks, it's because the spirit of drunkenness has overtaken him. And I mean that in a demonic type sense. Um, every time someone lies, it's because the, the spirit of deceit has entered into that person and caused them to lie. Or you can pick out whatever sin you want to pick out. And, and when it happens, it's because hiding behind, behind every corner is the spirit of a variety of sins. And if they can get to you fast enough and pounce on you quick enough, they can make you sin in that way. They're experts. They've been doing it for a long time. Okay, That's the this present darkness model. The other one that I think is helpful in contrast is uh, most of you are familiar with the Lord of the Rings. And the spiritual warfare, particularly that's seen in the character Gollum and the ring. If you don't know the story, Gollum is this, by the time you get to him, he is this disfigured ugly, pitiful, little munchkin of a figure who has destroyed himself in pursuit of a ring. 
And it's not because there have been demons that have made him do it. It's because he believes that this ring is precious. And it's so precious that he's willing to kill or destroy anything and everything that gets in the way of him possessing it. And so he lives his life in pitiful solitude, longing for the very thing that is destroying him. The problem here is a heart that thinks that this ring is precious when in fact it is destroying him slowly but surely and everybody can see it except for him. Now when you think about how those two metaphors lay out, they're, they're, they're obviously different. The one that would align itself with Scripture would be the Lord of the Rings, Gollum and the Ring. It's entertaining to read this present darkness, and if you have it and you like it, I'm not mad at you, and I don't think you ought to go throw it away. You just shouldn't read it as if it's inspired, because it's not. Peretti was creative, he just wasn't biblical. The reason you and I sin is because in the moment, we think that whatever it is we're after is more precious than Christ. Every time, that's the way it works. You say, well, I would never say that. Well, you don't have to say it with your mouth. You say it with your actions every time. It's this Gollum syndrome that we have to where we, for whatever reason, can be so blinded We can be so deceived into thinking that the very thing that's destroying us is what will make our life what it was supposed to be. When you think about how sin works, the way James describes it out of James chapter 1, is that our hearts are drawn away. That just means our hearts are drawn to go after the temptation. We've talked about this before, but um, temptation is not really universal from the standpoint that we're all tempted with the same things. Some are tempted with vanity. Some are not. Some are tempted with gluttony. Some are not. Some are tempted and we could just keep going, but we'll just use those two. So so I'll use myself as an example and those two work good for me. As far as vanity goes, I'm not saying I'm not a vain person in some sense, But here's what I can guarantee you. I spend as little time as possible in front of the mirror every day. If it were up to me and I were not married, I would have a shaved head so I would never have to brush my hair in the morning because it just slows me down. I got better things to do. 
If it were up to me, and if you've been here long enough, you realize for the last five or six years, I've worn a very similar version of what I have on right now every single Sunday. Okay, The shirt changes a little, but not much. The rest is the same. I have four pair of pants that look exactly alike. You want to know why? Because they work. They work. I'm not trying to make it on GQ cover, right? If you think I'm not put together well, I don't really care. Okay? That, that's not a goal in my life. So vanity is not a thing for me. Gluttony certainly could be. You want to know the weight of my heart, you can ask my nieces, you can ask my daughter, you can ask my wife. F-O-O-D. Food. I love it. Um, I could gorge on good food, easily be drawn into gluttony. I know some people that that's not the case at all. It just doesn't, they just need to get full. I don't understand you if that's you, but there are people where that's the case. Now here's the question. Does that make me, the fact that I would, I would gravitate toward gluttony but not vanity, what does that mean about me intrinsically as far as righteousness is concerned? <clears throat> I would say it doesn't mean anything. The fact that I don't struggle with vanity doesn't, doesn't make me any more righteous than you if you do. The fact that you might not struggle with gluttony doesn't make you any more righteous than I do if you don't. The reality is we have different appetites and those appetites come from our heart. And if there were no drawing of our heart to any sin at all, you could be tempted 24 hours a day and never sin. That's how it could be said of Jesus Christ, that he was in, that he was tempted in all points, but he did not sin. Why? Because his heart was never drawn away. Jesus never saw a single temptation and thought to himself, you know, had a Gollum episode where he thought this is more precious than living a life in fellowship with my father. He never had that. You and I have that all the time. This is the real battle that we that we face. The Bible is very clear that the main player in the Christian spiritual warfare is not demons and angels, but it's beliefs, desires, and choices. The main player, what I mean by that is the one who gets to dictate the outcome. Think about Romans chapter 6. Turn there. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. It says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience 
unto righteousness. So the question is in Romans 6.16, for the believer, I'm not talking about an unbeliever. An unbeliever is in darkness. Um, An unbeliever has no ability to even engage in the war as far as on the side of the kingdom of God. But for the believer, one who's been translated out of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, what determines whether or not you're going to be a servant of sin or a servant of righteousness? Maybe I should say who determines whether or not you're going to be a servant of sin or a servant of righteousness. And according to the text, it's you. You are the one who will either choose to yield your members as instruments of righteousness, verse 13, or you are the one who will decide to become servants of sin. Romans chapter 6, as it goes through this, and, and, and you could read the whole chapter and, and uh, see the progression there, is very clear. We'll go to some more verses here in a second on this, but Romans is very clear that you do not live in a world where demons pounce on you, possess you, and force you as a puppet to do things that you do not want to do. We live in a world where you're tempted and you get to choose whether or not you're going to yield yourself and yield your members to righteousness or to unrighteousness. Or how about Ephesians chapter 4? Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4... Verse 27, we have this command. It's short, but it's here. Neither give place to the devil. It comes on the heels of verse 26. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Now this is helpful as we try to think about how Satan works. And the kind of power that Satan does and does not have over you. The word there, the phrase, give place to the devil, could be translated, do not give Satan a foothold. So what he's saying here is in context with verse 26, that if you are angry and you do not resolve that anger before it turns into sinful anger, then what you're doing is you are literally taking Satan's hand and placing it on your heel. That is, you're giving Satan an opportunity. It's just a metaphorical way of saying that. You're inviting Satan in. You're giving him an opportunity to tear down what Christ is seeking to build up, and that happens through unresolved conflict and relationships in the body of Christ. But the question is this. According to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, who gets to choose whether or not Satan will get a foothold? You do. You do. Neither give place to the devil. That's talking to me. That's talking to you. 
So every time we have a conflict that needs to be resolved and it isn't resolved, sometimes we can play those things off and, and minimize them and, and say, well, you know, it's, uh, I don't want to make it a bigger deal than it is. And there are plenty of things that we can overlook. But there are things that sometimes threaten the unity of the body that need to be resolved between two people. And if either out of laziness or cowardice, whatever it is, we decide not to do that. God says in the spiritual realm, what you have just done is given Satan an opportunity to tear apart what he's seeking to build up. We did that. Satan didn't do it on his own. You see the same kind of language in James chapter 4. Turn there, James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God... Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit yourselves unto God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now again, the question is, who is the one who chooses whether or not they're going to resist the devil and submit to God? Well, that would be you. That would be me. These are commands that we're getting from Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, from James and James chapter 4. And the reality is that the warfare that we live in, the spiritual battles that we face, really do take place at the point of choice. The choices that we make in what can seem to be just mundane experiences of life, things that can start out small and end up causing huge damage. I mean, even if we just think about the Ephesians 4 one for a minute, not from an individual standpoint, but as we think about it from a, a church standpoint, be angry and sin not, do not let the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. We've all, most of us, you've been around very long, you, you know of churches who have gone through crippling, crippling splits and maybe even shut the doors. And at the end of all of that, or maybe we should say in the height of all of that, it was an atmosphere that was characterized by contention, by suspicion, by people taking sides, and by just flat-out division. Most of the time, this kind of thing happens because two individuals didn't take the time to resolve a difference, and it splintered and fractured the church. And we get finished with something like that and say, well, Satan sure did tear that church apart. And if we were being biblically accurate, we should say, no, that's not what happened. These people invited Satan in. And what do you expect them to do? I mean, that's a, that's a logical question, isn't it? What do you expect Satan to do if you give him an opportunity? Do you think Satan's going to make you more loving? 
Do you think Satan's in the business of promoting unity? No. Satan's seeking whom he may devour. Now the question is, are we, again, we're thinking spiritual warfare here, are we going to be the ones who invite him in and who allow him through us to cause division, strife, destruction, not just within the church, within your family, within your own personal witness. It's interesting that whenever you look at the book of Job, Job is one of those books where we see um, behind the scenes in a way that we don't see in a lot of other narratives in Scripture. And we get to see Satan at work in a lot of ways that we don't see in other way, in other areas. And here's what we can clearly see out of Job. Number one, Satan can do a lot. He can do a lot. Job lost his family. Job lost his health. Job lost his possessions. You can go back and read the first couple of chapters and see how that happened. How? Satan did all that. The book is clear. He brings all that about. But you know what Satan could not do? He could not make Job do anything. Okay. If you go back and you read that, you can see that he could control all the circumstances that were happening as far as environmentally goes. But what he could not do was make Job do anything. Everything that Job did, Job chose to do. Now, we could say it was because he was upheld by the sustaining grace of God, and that part is true. But nevertheless, Satan was out to destroy Job, and he could do everything except make Job do something. And so it's the, really, it's, it's, it's the same with us. And so the battle that we face, as we said earlier, really revolves around some pretty basic questions. when you think about spiritual warfare. Question number one is, uh, who will you trust? Who will you trust? We talked about this earlier, but when you go back to Genesis chapter 3, While Satan has been around for a long time, um, I don't think it's an overstatement to say, and I think biblically whenever you look, it's not that, that Satan has over the years come up with several thousand different Tactics. Maybe I should say seven or, or several thousand years worth of weapons. Satan primarily has one weapon that he has perfected over thousands of years, and that is getting you to believe a lie. Genesis 3. Starting in verse 1, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. 
And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Who will you trust? Here we have Eve who's placed in the garden. Everything she could possibly need. Really everything she could possibly want. God gives her one prohibition. Do not eat of this tree. Now that points a couple of things out. Number one, it points out God's generosity. But number two, it also points out God's clarity. I mean, it's hard to mess that up. Out of all the rest of the trees you may eat, but this one you may not. And what does Satan do? Well, he comes in in a subtle way and slowly begins to chip away at Eve's answer to this question. Who will you trust? Who will you trust? Did God really say that? Who will you trust? You realize you won't really die. God's just afraid you'll be more like Him. This is These prohibitions are just, these are things that, you know, people came up with to try to keep you from being who God created you to be. These prohibitions are here to stifle and squelch the joy that you could have otherwise. You won't die. As a matter of fact, you'll experience freedom and wisdom. The reason you're even asking these questions is because you have more light than most. That's kind of the, of course, there wasn't a whole lot for for Satan to compare Eve to besides Adam. But This is it. God's trying to keep you from what you could have. Who are you going to trust? You know, Ephesians 1.3 says that you've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. Satan sure does have a way of making that reality seem irrelevant in day-to-day life, doesn't he? He has a way of, of, yeah, that makes for a good sermon, but I need more than that right now. He has a way of making what the world can offer seem so much better so that we will foolishly choose to plant ourselves in the world 
and find a refuge there rather than in Christ and in His provisions. That's war. We think about this every single day that you wake up. You have a choice. You can either take the time to open up God's Word or not. That's war. You can either take the time to pray and spend time with the Lord in asking for help and in seeking to um, commune with Him or not. That's war. God says in Psalm 1, that the man who is planted by these rivers of water will bring forth his fruit in his season. This is the man who's, who's meditating and delighting in the Word. He will prosper. He will be fruitful. But you know what Satan says? Well, it's some new version of this every morning. I'm just running behind. I got something else I've just got to get to. There's something more pressing right now. Maybe it's not every morning. Maybe it's this idea that you have that I'm just in a season of life where it's just not conducive for this. It's just not. I don't have time for regular time in the Word. I don't have time for regular uh, time in prayer. I don't even have time for regular attendance in church. This is just not the season for me. You know what you call that? Deception. That's what you call it. Deception. It's Satan who has come in time after time and said, has God really said? Here's the question. Is God really all that serious about you being in the Word so that you can grow and be fruitful? Well, any scenario where we conclude He has not is the result of a lie that Satan has led us into. Is it really all that important? I mean, can you, can you look at the New Testament and walk away with the idea that, that God really is, He's not really, it's not really that big a deal if you're, if you're committed to assembling yourselves together on a weekly basis or not. Is that a big deal? I mean, we got Facebook now, we got YouTube now, and ever since COVID, there's avenues, and we take advantage of those for those who are sick and those who can't make it. But can you walk away from Scripture and come to the conclusion that, you know, this whole church thing is just overblown? Well, you can if you believe Satan's lies. You can believe that the church that Christ shed His blood for is not really all that important. You can believe that the body that God means to do the heavy lifting on your sanctification isn't really all that important. This whole speaking the truth in love that we might grow up into our head, edifying ourselves together in love. And you, you walk away from the first half of Ephesians 4 and there's no way outside of just believing Satan's lie. Has God really said that you could have a half-hearted approach to the provision of the church of God 
that He's given to every believer. Okay, Church, the Word, prayer, all of these things. We're talking about battle. See, this is far different than the demon of laziness overtaking you. <clears throat> this is far different than somebody possessing you and moving you off. This is you treasuring something in your heart over and above Jesus Christ and over and above what He treasures. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18 says that Christ has displayed the love of God for us in so great a way that it's beyond our understanding. You, you can't wrap your mind around it. And what Satan says is, the love of the world is better. It's easier. It costs less. You can find what you're looking for here. We could go on and on and on. Brothers and sisters, that's where the battle takes place. We could say more, but we're out of time. As we live our day to day, the prayer is that God would bless us to recognize that number one, we have an enemy. Number two, you live in the midst of a hostile environment. In other words, the world system is the enemy's territory. Number three, you live with a heart that has partial affection toward the enemy's lies. We've got to recognize that. The other thing that we have to recognize is that he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. That through the power of Jesus Christ, we are called into this battle to be transformed through the renewal of our minds that we might be able to, number one, detect the schemes of Satan. We're not ignorant of those. And number two, that we might be able to battle, and fight the good fight for the glory of Christ and His kingdom. May God bless us to do so. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come to You and we willingly confess that um, this battle that is portrayed in Ephesians 6 and other places in Scripture is too big for us in and of ourselves. Lord, we confess that um, left to ourselves, we are susceptible to every single lie. But we also confess and thank You, Lord, that through Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, that You have given us superior provisions than what this world has. And through Him, we can be overcomers. And so that's what I pray. I pray You would apply this message to each in every heart, wherever each individual is. And I pray that you would bless us to fight the fight, uh, the good fight for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.